Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. All right, if you've got a Bible, you can take it out. We're busy going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're in part 24, which means that we've been doing 24 weeks already in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you are visiting today, it's great to have you with us. Um, if you would like to catch up on some of those previous sermons, they're all available online. You can go to our YouTube channel or on podcast. You can find them there. Today we're in chapter 14. Uh, we've been in a kind of a mini-series within the series looking at spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, Paul begins to talk about these spiritual gifts in chapter 12, it starts off now concerning spiritual gifts. And so they had written to Paul, and they had asked Paul questions about especially the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues and prophecy. And then Paul gives us some insights into uh, the nature of spiritual gifts and the purpose of spiritual gifts. And one of the things we discovered in chapter 12 was that there are many different spiritual gifts. There are varieties of service, varieties of abilities, and varieties of gifts. But it's the same spirit that empowers all in each. The other thing we noted in chapter 12 is that the purpose of the gifts is, is determined by its intent. And its intent wasn't a narrow intent only. It was quite a, a broad intent and that means that the intent of the gifts determines the extent of the gifts. And that helped us to unpack chapter 13, where in chapter 13, Paul specifically addresses the duration of gifts. And he reminded us that the gifts will be around until the perfect comes, which we discovered last week that the perfect is synonymous with the return of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus comes, these gifts will cease. We no longer need spiritual gifts because we will be with Christ face to face. And so today in chapter 14, uh, Paul zooms in a little closer on the two gifts that have been causing trouble in the church in Corinth. And uh, the Corinthian church was abusing these two gifts, and the two gifts were prophecy and tongues. And so he speaks about prophecy and tongues interchangeably throughout this chapter. And I want to encourage you to read the chapter on your own. We're going to do it quite differently today and next week. I want to deal with firstly prophecy, which we're going to look at today. And then next week we'll look at tongues. And it's very difficult to go verse by verse because he's chopping and changing between these two gifts. And so we're going to approach it slightly differently today. We're going to focus just on the gift of prophecy today and then the gift of tongues next week, God willing. So let's read verse 1, chapter 14, verse 1. Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So Paul begins again by reminding us of where our priority should be. The priority is that, that not that we're a gift-centered church, but that we're a Christ-centered church. When he says pursue love, he's just described love for us, hasn't he? In chapter 13. And what did we note about the love that he described? The love is not just a description of, of love or definition of love. It's actually a description of a person. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is patience. Jesus is kind. Jesus bears all things, loves all things, hopes all things. Jesus rejoices in the truth, keeps no record of wrong. He describes the person and work of Jesus. So when he says pursue love, it's almost as if he's saying pursue Christ. 
Pursue Christ. Or we could say pursue Christ-like love. Christ-like love is preeminent. We're not to be a gift-centered church. We're to be a Christ-centered church. The gifts enable us to make much of Christ. The gifts are subordinate to, to, to the love motive, the Christ-like love motive. So he says, pursue love, the priority. This is the operating system. Every Christian needs love, Christ-like love, not worldly love. Remember we noted that last time, that, that somehow this concept of love is being redefined by the world. And, and we, we have to keep it within its biblical framework, amen? We have to understand that Jesus is the definition of love, that, that the way Jesus describes Love, the way that Jesus sees love in the home and in marriage and in family, that's true love, the way Jesus defines it. And so that's the operating system for every believer. And if we don't have love as the central operating system, then the gifts begin to malfunction in the church. Notice also here in verse 1, it's the same language we had at the end of chapter 12. Remember this in chapter 12, verse 31, he ended off by saying, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And it's almost like that idea of the higher gifts triggered it, Paul, to, to talk about love as the main motive. And so because he ends that way in chapter 12, and now he starts this way in chapter 14, the language is repeated, and he's now resuming his discussion in a sense. All of that to say that chapter 12, 13, and 14 actually form one unit of thought and context. And so chapter 13 should never be isolated from what goes before and what comes after. So, this puts us then in a very interesting position with regards to verse 1 here. Let's look at it again. He says, pursue love earnestly desire, don't just, not just any desire, but an earnest desire for the spiritual gifts. And then this, especially that you may prophesy. Okay. Strong words. Pursue, especially, earnestly, desire, what are we to make of this? Well, let's consider the two options. We spoke of two camps, two schools of thought. We spoke of the cessationists and the continuationists. The cessationists say that the sign gifts have ceased because we have a closed canon of Scripture. And we understand their, 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 their burden. The burden is we don't want to add to the Bible, and to that we say, Amen. We're not going to be adding to the Bible. We don't do that. We're not Mormons. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. We're not a crazy charismatic group of any form or fashion or kind. We believe in sola scriptura. Scripture is the only authority for the church. So what is this gift of prophecy then that we are to especially desire? Because if the gift of prophecy, according to the cessationists, that's mentioned here in verse 1, is the same as Old Testament prophecy. Then, what he's saying to the Corinthians is, Corinthians and early churches, you must desire an infallible, authoritative word from God. 
Because if Paul's definition here of prophecy is equal to Old Testament prophecy, then what Paul is saying for them can, can be desired, but for us shouldn't be desired. Does that make sense? The reason it shouldn't be desired for us is because we should not be desiring a new authoritative word from God because then it should be added to Scripture. In other words, if we say that this word prophecy here in verse 1, that we are to desire, that we are to especially desire, if we, if we conclude that this prophecy is the same as Old Testament prophecy, in other words, it's authoritative, it's what got us the Bible in the first place, if we are to desire that, then we should be adding it to Scripture. But we know we can't do that. And so the only conclusion then is we should not do this. We should not especially desire prophecy today. The early church could do it, but we today shouldn't do this. And that leaves you with a predicament. We have to disobey this verse. As a cessationist, as someone who believes that prophecy, the New Testament version of prophecy is the same as the Old Testament version of prophecy, it leaves you with a predicament that you have to disobey this verse. But if you see prophecy here mentioned as different to Old Testament prophecy, then we can freely pursue this gift. So if New Testament gift of prophecy is a spontaneous, non-authoritative revelation, it's not equal to Scripture, it doesn't challenge the Scriptures, but it's intended to encourage one another, then we can gladly obey and desire this gift. So that's my, my case. And here's why I want to argue for the latter position. And the latter position is this, that the New Testament gift of prophecy that Paul is speaking of here is not the same as the Old Testament gift of prophecy. And the big difference is Old Testament prophecy was authoritative. It was a word from God. The Old Testament prophets could say, Thus saith the Lord. Whereas New Testament prophecy was not on the same standard, not on the same authority. And here's why. Paul explains it. He's going to give us five key observations. And this could be a little bit nerdy, but I'm hoping to land it with some good application. So here we go. The first two observations we find in verses 1 through 3. So let's read the text again. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. We'll talk about that next week. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So here's the first reason I think Paul is giving to show that there is a distinction between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. And the first reason is this. Paul begins the chapter with a remarkable command. This is a remarkable command. This, this is the, the genre of this text isn't narrative. There are parts in narratives, for example, in Acts, where we could say, yes, that was for them, it's not for us. But this isn't narrative. Neither is this poetry, right? 
Neither is it principle. What this is, is an epistle. It is a letter. Paul is writing to a church, and therefore it's an instruction. Which leaves us again with the dilemma. The dilemma is this is not a suggestion. This is an imperative. This is a command. And if it is a command, then it is radically at odds with an Old Testament understanding of prophecy. That, that people, by and large, across all the churches, across all ages, should be desiring and earnestly seeking after an authoritative word from God. It's highly unlikely. But maybe, maybe the change between old and new is precisely because of a fulfillment of a previous prophecy. For example, in Acts 2 verse 17, where we read this, And in the last days, which is what we're in since the first coming of Jesus, in the last days it shall be, this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, God declares. That's what Old Testament prophets said. God is declaring, God is speaking. I will pour out my spirit. When is this going to happen? Joel told us it was going to be in the last days. Now Peter is quoting Joel and he's saying this is happening. This is already happening after the, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So what Peter has in mind here and what Joel had in mind here is a widespread experience of prophecy not just a narrow few prophets who spoke authoritatively from god what was once limited to a few individuals in the old testament peter now sees as being widespread throughout the new testament even your sons and daughters will prophesy notice also the, the, the way in which Paul is encouraging that we seek this gift, there is no restraint here. There is no sense in which Paul is saying, hey, earnestly desire this, but be warned. There's no warnings. I find that very interesting. The warnings are absent here. Whereas when you go into the Old Testament and we look at prophets and prophecy in the Old Testament, it was always accompanied with a harsh warning. For example, in Deuteronomy 18 verse 20, it says this, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, that same prophet shall die. So the stakes were high, right? If you're speaking in the name of God, if you're declaring God to say things, the stakes were high. And if you got it wrong, you could get stoned under the Old Testament. But somehow Paul doesn't attach this to the, 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 to the language here. He just says, earnestly desire this, this gift, especially that you may prophesy. And there's an absence of warnings. And it's possibly because Paul has a different version of prophecy in mind. To the Old Testament. The second reason for this distinction we see here in Paul's definition. So Paul emphasizes a unique role of prophecy in the local church. Look at verse 3. He says, The one who now prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And yes, this isn't an exhaustive description, it's not an exhaustive definition. 
But if Paul had in mind Old Testament prophecy, the Old Testament version, the infallible, authoritative version, it seems really weird that he doesn't describe it as doctrinal instruction, as producing instruction, as producing theology, as bringing about an authoritative statement which we submit to. No, no, he, he, he speaks of it in far looser terms, that it's for encouragement, that it's for consolation, that it's for upbuilding. And you could argue that the authoritative word would do that, and that's absolutely right, but it's not restricted to that. So that's another key thought. The third key thought is what we find a little later in the text, and that is that Paul actually gives us an example of this kind of prophecy that he has in mind. And the example is very different to what we find in the Old Testament. So here it is. Paul's hypothetical example is the kind of prophecy he has in mind. And we find this in verses 24 and verse 25 of chapter 14. Have a look at this with me. He says, but if all prophesy, again, there it is. It's widespread, isn't it? It's not just narrow. It's not just a few prophets. But it's if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters. So now we are in a service, right? Paul's got us in a service. He's got us in a church. It could have been a synagogue. It could be a home. Wherever it is, an unbeliever comes, an unbeliever enters, and he's convicted by all. He's a call to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That sounds incredible. I think as Christians, we're all desiring that, right? We're all hoping that, you know, I can bring my non-Christian friend to church or somehow somebody comes to church for the first time and what happens is there's this version of prophecy. Somehow there's prophecy happening in the church. There's this kind of New Testament version of prophecy and part of it is that he's convicted, there's a conviction that comes into his heart. There's, there's a sense in which the secrets of his heart are being exposed. And he goes, God is here. God is truly among you. Now, what's interesting is that what Paul's describing here, we see happening throughout church history. And I just want to pick on one example. Charles Spurgeon, and you've probably heard me say this, but Charles Spurgeon, in the middle of one of his sermons... In, in, the, in, the, in the darkness of winter, he was preaching and there was freezing cold in the heart of London. He was preaching the gospel and, and a young man entered the service at the back and he noted as he came in and he sat down there at the back and as he was seated, sitting there, he was listening to the sermon and in the middle of the sermon, Charles Spurgeon stopped his train of thought and he pointed at the young man and he said, young man, the gloves that you are wearing, you stole on your way to church, you need to take them back and then he carried on with his sermon. And at the end, he was sitting turning to some people and this young man came up to him and said, how did you know? I was walking. I wasn't even going to church and I passed by some old guy who was sitting at the bench and his gloves were sticking out of his pocket and I took the gloves and I put them on my hands to stay warm and, and then I came to church to escape the cold weather outside. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Not, not specifically about this occasion, but other occasions. Here's, here's a quote from Spurgeon. He says, There are occasionally impressions of the Holy Spirit which guide men where no other guidance could have answered the end. I have been the subject of such impressions myself. 
and have seen very singular results therefrom. This sounds very different to the Old Testament prophets. The, the idea of an impression, something specific given to someone that brings conviction, that brings about a repentance. So that's the example that Paul gives in this context. The fourth reason we think that New Testament prophecy is different to Old Testament prophecy, at least in this context, is Paul gives instructions here about evaluating prophecy. Notice what he says here in verse 29 and 31. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Again, it's fairly widespread. We're feeling like Joel's prophecy is coming to pass. But notice that this is again at odds with what we would find with Old Testament prophecy. Firstly, you would never dare silence an Old Testament prophet so that you can have your turn, right? Secondly, you probably would not weigh up the words of a legitimate Old Testament prophet. You would obey him. You wouldn't say, okay, let me think about it. Let me weigh it up. We don't see that in the Old Testament. What we see in the Old Testament is you obey the Old Testament prophet. But Paul says, no, let the others weigh what is said. All of this to show that there is a shift here. There is a change between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. And then Paul does a bit of a weird thing about, he even addresses the woman in the Corinthian church. And he says, hey, no, sometimes in, in the church, the woman must be silent. If you've read this chapter, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and I realize that this could be a whole sermon in and of itself. But let me just say one or two things. Paul is not forbidding women from saying anything at all in church. That is not what he's saying. Because just before this, in chapter 11, he encourages women and wives to be involved in services and even to prophesy in chapter 11, verse 5. So what is he then forbidding? And clearly, within the context of weighing and evaluating prophecy, he's saying to, 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 to the wives, he's saying to them, listen, don't interrupt the service. Don't assume the role that your husband should have in weighing the prophecies. Go home and ask him at home. It seemed to have been a, an issue in the Corinthian church. And if you want to know more information about that, you can come and speak to me, or you can read Wayne Grudem systematic theology but we don't have time for that right now but the fifth thing and then i want to land this the fifth thing is that paul himself asserts his own authority over the prophets in the church at corinth look at the end he says in verse 37 and 38 if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual he should acknowledge that the things i am writing to you are a command of the lord if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, Paul sees his authority, his revelation, his prophetic gifting as superior to theirs. There is a sense in which he doesn't submit, he doesn't see them as equal. And the only explanation for that is that he's an authoritative apostle and they're not. And so there is a distinction, five reasons that there is a distinction 
between Old Testament and New Testament. Now, I know that might, might have just been like over your head or nerdy, but what this frees us to do is it frees us to obey, verse 1. It frees us to go, you know what? I can earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. So what does that look like? And Paul even concludes, look at his conclusion in verse 39. In verse 39 and 40, it says, So, my brothers, he has, his, he has his final conclusion on prophecy. So, my brothers, don't forget, we'll talk about tongues next week. So, my brothers, earnestly desire, there it is again, earnestly desire to prophesy. And again, I'm going, Paul, if you've got Old Testament prophecy in mind here, we've got problems. We've got to open the canon. Or we disobey it. Or we just flatly disobey this instruction. And then he says, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. And his conclusion is, but all things should be done decently and in order. And all the conservatives say, amen. All Christians should say, amen. So here's how I want to end. I want to give us three suggestions for how do we as covenant grace, how do we as covenant grace earnestly desire this gift of prophecy? What does it look like for us as a church? So number one, here's the first thing we need to do. We need to regularly preach and declare God's word. The Puritans used to call preaching the art of prophesying. The art of prophesying. Paul's argument in this chapter is we need to focus on what best builds up the church. We see it in verse 12. He says, strive to excel in building up the church. Why is he emphasizing this? Because they were so focused on individual gifts. What's my gift? What makes me better than others? Paul says that's nonsense. Strive in what builds up others. He says it again in verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. And Paul would agree that if people need a word from the Lord, and, and people do, we all do, we all need a word from God, then what we really need is an authoritative word from God. We really need a Bible word from God. Something that we can rest our whole weight on. Something that we can put our, all of our trust in. And, and the best way to build up the church is to hear the Word of God read and explained and applied. That's the first thing we need to do as a church. As a member, you might be sitting there going, but I don't do the preaching. And that's, that's right. But as a faithful member, you should be equally committed to this first point. You should not want to be in a church that is not faithfully and regularly preaching the Word of God. It is one thing to preach from the Bible. It is another thing to preach the Bible. It is a very different thing to preach from the Bible. I would go as far to say that every church... And even every cult preaches from the Bible. Because you can make the Bible say anything. Which is why we don't just preach from the Bible. We preach the Bible. Actually, the text. 
in its context. I know that in the past, we, I've had people say when they visited our church, oh, but you guys have such, there's not much prophecy in your church. And I want to push back and I want to say, actually, we have 40 minutes of prophecy every week. But it's the authoritative word of God. It's, it's the highest form of prophecy. It's the highest gift. It's, it's, it's the authoritative word of God that we press upon our hearts. We submit to the word of God. So that's the first thing. If we're going to be a prophetic people, if we're going to be a people who eagerly desire prophecy, the first thing we do is we root ourselves under the Bible. Secondly, now we're not only going to do that. That's the highest form, and all Christians would do that. But secondly, we must, and this, this could be different, we must faithfully and boldly live out God's Word. I, I, I fear that sometimes we... We're not actually, we, we, we're saying we're Christians, but we're not living as Christians. And if we're going to be a prophetic people and show people what God is like, there has to be a consistency between who we are on Sunday and who we are Monday to Saturday. And the example that Paul gives us in this passage is interesting. He says, if an unbeliever comes into your service and all are prophesying, in other words, there's good preaching of God's word and you're singing good gospel-centered songs and the cross of Christ is being explained and people are fellowshipping. It's all about God and, and there's conversations and there's prayer happening and there's conviction that comes in people's hearts. I want to say, let's not... Let's not just trust God for that on a Sunday. Yes, let's do that. Let's hope that that happens on a Sunday. But we can also do that Monday through Saturday, right? By faithful witness. By prophetic witness that actually my life matches my convictions. And that I am a Christian. And, and, and actually that means that I need to stand up for certain things. And I need to... Recover my voice on certain subjects and topics. We spoke a little bit about this last week. Church, we're in a situation where if the church remains silent on issues that our culture is not silent about, then a whole generation is going to grow up only hearing one worldview. Let me say that again. If we as the church remain silent on cultural issues, hot topics, then a whole generation is going to grow up with only one worldview. We need to recover our prophetic witness. The church throughout history has always been on the forefront. The church led the way to the freedom of slaves. The church led the way to restoration between races. The church has always been a prophetic voice to the culture. And right now, the culture wants to silence our voice. And we cannot let it be that way. We have to recover our prophetic voice. We have to live it out and we need to find our voice again. We can't just sit back in silence. We need to stand up for truth with love and conviction. Amen? Finally, thirdly, 
We must lovingly share our Bible-saturated impressions. This is a little bit more what I was talking about as we were going through the text. These prophetic promptings, what Spurgeon called impressions from the Spirit. Listen to how he ends it in chapter 14, verse 30. He says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there. So here's the picture. Someone's just sitting there. And they're in the service, and we're worshiping together, and there's preaching of God's word, and there's all this wonderful opportunity for ministry. And you're just sitting there. It says, and if a revelation is made to another sitting there. In other words, they didn't manufacture it, right? It wasn't manufactured. It was given, because that's how this works. The Spirit moves as He wills, not as we will. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, look at this. Let the first be silent. So, in other words, it's probably in a house church context, you know, someone's sharing, and suddenly you get a revelation. Actually, that guy must now be quiet because I've got a word from the Lord, we, we, we think. And then he says, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. In other words, if you get a revelation, it's not that you're out of control. No, no. If you, if you feel like you've got a burden to say something, that, that you've got a conviction or a fresh revelation, it's not that you've lost control and you don't know how to stop yourself. No, no. He's saying, no, no. You, you, you're subject to this. It's the, the Holy Spirit is a spirit of control. You don't lose self-control. But here's the point. It's a spontaneous revelation. It's not manufactured. You didn't dream it up. You didn't create it. And you weren't coached to do it, right? It's not a learnt skill. It comes by revelation, by the Spirit. And so what do we do with prophetic promptings? What do we do with prophetic impressions? We wisely steward them. All things must be done decently and in order. There is an order in which we yield to these things. There's an order in which we do not overstate these things. We don't run around saying, God says, thus saith the Lord. No, no, we, we, we treat them as impressions. I think, I feel, I sense that God might be wanting to encourage you. Or young man, the sweets in your pocket are not yours. D.A. Carson, who's a preeminent New Testament scholar, he said this in his great book. He's got written a great book called Showing the Spirit, dealing with chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians. He says this, the prophecy Paul has in mind is revelatory and spirit-prompted but none of this means it is necessarily authoritative, infallible, or canon-threatening. Can I encourage us <clears throat> as a church to be committed to these three things? What I've described is quite a broad view of prophecy. I haven't tried to narrow it. I've taken the Old Testament prophecy, which we have now in the Bible, and I've said, yes, we want to proclaim that. But also we want to do a little more. 
We want to be a prophetic people to our culture, live out God's word, and we want to be desiring those promptings, those impressions, to strengthen and encourage one another. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much that you are with us by your Spirit and in your Word. We thank you that you speak to us through the Scriptures. Lord, the burden of my heart this morning is that we would be a prophetic people, a people who do not sit down when we should be standing up, a people who are not silent when we should have a voice. Lord, we're in an age right here, right now, where we feel that persecution is growing. That the church is under pressure to conform to the culture. And it's our prayer that we would not lose our voice or lose our convictions but that we would have the strength and courage with truth and love to hold fast. To, to be a picture, to be a prophetic picture of the kingdom of God on earth. That's what we are, the church. The kingdom of heaven on earth. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be a people that you are pleased with. That you would pour out your spirit upon us. That we would have conversations where we say things that we never thought we would say. That we would have impressions by your spirit that would bring about conviction of sin. And repentance. Lord, we pray for our Christian witness that it would grow and not diminish. And we pray for courage and boldness in these days that we're living in. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit on all flesh so that we, your sons and daughters, would prophesy, would declare the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.